most amazing time that you will ever spend is the first five minutes after you die. Man is the only creature that knows he is going to die, yet he continually tries to forget that fact. Some people actually get nervous at the thought of dying. Some people try to avoid the subject altogether. But the reality of the matter is that the Bible clearly tells us, Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed unto men, once to die, but after this the judgment. It is also true that you are not ready to live until you are prepared to die. No man is truly ready to live until he is no longer afraid to die. The real issue is not death, but rather what happens after you die. We're going to look at a story today where Jesus pulls back the curtain and lets us look over into the next life. Jesus tells us about this time immediately after death. It is amazing to me what people are interested in these days, but I know one thing for sure. Every one of us, myself included, should be interested in where we are going. What happens after this? I know where I came from. According to the Bible, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, I was created by God Almighty, and I was made in the image of God. When man made, was made in the image of God, uh, God breathed into him uh, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I could no more cease to exist than God himself could cease to exist. There is something different uh, about man than animals. Man has a spirit, and that spirit will go on and live forever. Uh, sooner or later, we are going to die, and they will hold our funeral. The loved ones will weep over my silent face, and darkness and shadows will fill the place five minutes after I die. But after I die, there is no more time to repent, my friend. No more time to turn back. No more wish I could have done this. No more opportunities five minutes after I die. Well, Jesus is the master teacher, and Jesus tells us a story here in the Bible. Now, some people call the story that I'm going to read from in a moment a parable, but the Bible does not call it a parable. Jesus doesn't call it a parable. At the end of this story, actually, Jesus uses a man's name. There is not one parable that Jesus taught in the Bible where Jesus uses a man's name. So this is a historic event, I believe. But even if it was a parable, well, the truth is still the same. So my story today that Jesus gives is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And beginning in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus tells about two men, and he contrasts two men, the rich man and the poor man. I'm reading beginning with verse 19. It says there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. Uh, what does that mean? It means, well, he had gourmet foods. He had fancy, expensive foods, the, the nicest of the nicest. Verse 20. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, it says, the dogs came and licked his sores. 
Pause there for a moment. Can you imagine a man covered with running sores and dogs licking those sores? Here is a man just trying to get some leftover garbage from the rich man, and he's in a poor, destitute situation. Verse 22, our story continues. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels, it says, into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, it says, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, a great chasm, a divide, so that they which would pass from hence uh, to you cannot come from one side to another, uh, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Verse 27, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. And he said, Nay, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, here is the story that Jesus told, an amazing story in Luke chapter 16. I believe here Jesus just took a page from history. And again, this is describing, I believe, an event that really happened. I believe with the story that Jesus tells, he lets us kind of look into the next world. Now, there's three things I want you to see as we look into this next world, if you please, today. Now, number one, there was a contrast in their lives. One was an extravagantly wealthy man. The other was just an ignominiously poor man. There seems to be such an inequity in life and uh, between people and between individuals. There are, uh, first of all, congenital inequities. What, what do I mean when I say congenital inequities? Well, all people are not equal. Maybe all are born equal maybe before the law, but certainly that's not true physically, nor is it true mentally. Some people, for instance, are really handsome or really beautiful. Uh, some people are lacking in attractiveness. And some people are born smart and intelligent. Other individuals struggle in their learning. Congenitally, uh, we're, we're all different. You may wonder, well, why were you born with certain genes and chromosomes? Why am I short or why am I tall? Why, why do I have the skin color that I do? Why am I this size or that size? Why, why, why? 
Well, there is the way you were genetically born and put together. Uh, There are congenital inequities, but there are also material inequities. For instance, again, not just referring to the genes, but materially, some people are born into wealth. Uh, Some people are born into poverty. Don't think for one minute that because you have all you possess materially, uh, that that is because of you. You could have been born somewhere in a third world country where they did not have all the niceties perhaps that you're used to now. All the luxuries, all the material possessions that you've grown accustomed to. So don't look down at others. Don't compare yourself and think that you are better than they are because of what you have material and materially and maybe what they are lacking materially. I can imagine in this story that Jesus told that as this rich man was sitting there with his fine cuisine, his choice foods, and when his servant came up to him at the end of the meal and said, Look, mister, we we have some leftovers, mister rich man. Should I take them out and give them to that poor beggar man sitting out there at the gate? I can imagine, it's not in the text, but I can only imagine perhaps the rich man said, No way! Don't give that poor man any food. He'll never go away if we give him food. He's just worthless and lazy. If he would get up and go to work, then he would have something. The problem is that this man has no ambition like I do. Now, I can just imagine that, but be careful if that would be the attitude that we would adopt. Be careful when you talk that way. Don't suppose for one moment that because you have what you have, it is simply because of you. No, the Bible asks the question, what do we have that we have not received? So many times we look down on the poor, but Jesus did not, did not look down on the poor. This life is full of certain inadequacies and inequities and uh, different uh, injustices when it comes socially and, uh, again, our genes, our chromosomes, all of our makeup. You see, this poor man in Jesus' story was an outcast in his society. He was looked down on by others, while just the opposite was true of the rich man. People looked at him. They admired him. They, they wanted to be like him. They, they wanted to be around and sit at his table. Our Lord Jesus here in this story is showing us through his teaching that there is a contrast in life. Don't miss that. We need to see this as we look at this story. We need to admit there is a contrast. Not all people are are equal in these areas. See, Jesus is going to deal with three issues. Issue number one, life. Issue number two, death. Issue number three, eternity. Every other issue is a subset of those three great issues, life, death, and eternity. So he deals with life, but then he deals with death. See, in verse 22 of this same chapter, the text says, verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and he was buried. I don't care how rich he is, the rich man still died. The Bible says the rich man and the poor man met together, and the Lord is the maker of them all. One thing you can say about the rich man is that he is going to die. 
Reality of death is just as much a, a matter of fact for the rich man as it is for the poor man. But one thing you can say about the poor man, again, he is going to die. Both will die. Now, when the beggar dies, the text does not even say he was buried. The Bible says the rich man was buried. They probably had a funeral for the rich man, but probably not for the poor man. It doesn't say. Do you know what they would do sometimes with poor people in that society of that day? Sometimes they would carry them off to the dump and leave the animals to devour the flesh. Verse 22 says the rich man died and was buried. Imagine with me for just a moment. It's not in the Bible. Imagine what kind of funeral that rich man had. I can imagine the rich man lying there in that expensive casket. And uh, he was all fixed up, all kinds of flowers over the place and uh, perfume in the air. All sorts of uh, political dignities were there, all kinds of rich guests. And they would all have something to say about him and uh, what he did and how he gave and how he was used in the community and uh, how he blessed certain causes. Just imagine that. But everything they say about him does not change his destiny, does it, my friend? They can say all kinds of nice, kind platitudes, but it does not for one moment alter his destiny. We're going to see this rich man was in hell before the undertaker knew he had died. I hope you hear me loud and clear right now. We are seeing from this text that death is very real and death is very impartial. Doctors, bankers, preachers, salespeople, children, students, moms, dads, we all die. Life is as long as a piece of string that can be any length. You and I don't know when you are going to die. If you think about it, my friend, there's just merely a step between life and death. I've seen all ages of people at various stages of life die, and many who have died unexpectedly. I am going to die. You are going to die. This may be the last sermon I ever preach. This may be the last sermon you ever hear. No one knows the day or the hour they will die. Remember the verse that I read at the beginning of this message, Hebrews 9, 27? and as it is appointed unto men once to die. And so here in our text is a contrast. Here in our story of two men, they died, they both died. One was rich, one was poor. One man had a fine funeral, and the other man probably had no funeral at all. So there's a contrast in life, but there's also a contrast in death. Now I want to kind of tighten the focus for a moment and consider with me a contrast in eternity. What are we talking about is really after death. That's, that's what we want to get communicated loud and clear through the preaching today. Look in verse 23 of this same chapter. It speaks of the rich man who died and was buried. And then it says, in hell... He lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, both of these men died, and both of these men had an eternity to face. And so do you, and so do I. We all have an eternity to face. 
There is a life to live and a death to die and an eternity to face. Now, Jesus, again, gives us here just a look into the next life. And Jesus teaches us by divine inspiration and revelation that death does not mean extinction. There there is a difference between you and an animal. You don't die like a cow. I don't die like a dog. You live on and on and on. Death is not annihilation. Death is not extinction. Your soul, my soul, will be in existence somewhere throughout all eternity. I read this, I read somewhere that a man had inscribed on his tombstone these words. Pause, stranger, as you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare to die and follow me. Someone then wrote under that tombstone and left a little piece of paper underneath and said, To follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. Now, you are going to die. I am going to die. And not everyone is going to go to the same place. There is a contrast, not only in life and in death, but also in eternity. Think, for example, of the glories of heaven. In verse 22 of our text here in Luke 16, it says that the beggar died and was carried by the angel into Abraham's bosom. What does that mean? What's going on there? Well, it first means that he had an angel convoy to to bring him home to heaven. But it says that it was into Abraham's bosom. What does that mean? Well, Abraham was the friend of the faithful. He, He is talking here to Jews, and to be with Abraham was glorious. But, but it says Abraham's bosom. What does it mean, Abraham's bosom? Well, in Bible times, they had a feast. To sit at the proper position at the table was to recline. One would lie down on their side, and they would put their left arm, the elbow on the ground, and they would kind of prop up their, their head, their torso would be at an angle. And then they would eat with their right hand. They did this while they, they didn't eat while sitting up. They, they ate while in a reclining position. And the place of honor would be where your head would be at the chest of the host. That is the bosom. Here is what he is saying. This poor man who has been feeding on crumbs is not at, is not at the honored place at a feast. He is now at Abraham's bosom. That all parallels. When Jesus says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This poor man did not have it nice in his first life, his earthly life, but there he is in that choice position in the afterlife. You see, many of this earth's nobodies will be somebodies up in heaven. There's a lot of difference heaven will make. He had been feeding on the crumbs, and now he is with the highest of the high and at a banquet in glory. This is what heaven will be like. He is speaking here of heaven. I would like to take time in this message to explain about heaven, but I don't have the time to do so. And, well, frankly, uh, the, the text really prompts me to say more about hell than it does about heaven. You say, but, but why would you want to talk more about hell than heaven? 
Heaven is a much more polite, kind, uh, fine to think about subject. Well, we hear a lot today about heaven, don't we? But we don't hear a lot about hell. But people don't want to hear about hell today. You see, what Jesus is speaking most about in this story of Luke chapter 16 is five minutes after you die. Five minutes for you after you die. Five minutes after the life of the one who has rejected Jesus, the, the one who has not repented of their sins, is what I want to talk to you about for the next few moments. I, I want, again, us to see and for it to be our focus that you and I will be challenged even right now, uh, not just to ask what heaven is like, but to think about the reality that we know that we are going to heaven. Oh, heaven will be a lovely, wonderful place, and, and the heart of God is heaven for you, it's heaven for me. God has a mind that is all-knowing, and it will be, again, even the all-powerful hand of God that can prepare you and me for that place called heaven. Oh, I tell you, my friend, heaven will be a place that will be unlike any other place. I look forward to the reality of heaven because I am a child of God. I know Jesus. I walk with Jesus. I have asked Jesus into my life. And we want, again, for all of us to know that reality that Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. But again, we're not going to talk about heaven right now. We're going to talk about hell. Let's look again for a few moments more closely at that rich man. It says there at the end of verse 22, we read it, and on into verse 23, the rich man, it says, also died and was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I've had people surprised that I believe in hell. They ask me the question, do you really believe in hell? My answer is yes. Well, why do you believe in hell? Because I believe what the Bible has to say. It makes no difference if one is a politician, a scientist, a, a philosopher, poet, teacher, artist, a mover, a shaker, a colleague. It doesn't matter what those people would say about hell. What matters is what Jesus says about hell, what is recorded for us in the Bible about hell. That's what matters most. The Bible says hell is a real, literal place even though it is sometimes used loosely in everyday language and mocked by some, what we have here in Luke 16 is a story that Jesus told, and it is a reality. And may I go one step further and say, it would be cruel for me to believe there is a hell and not to warn you and not to warn others of the reality of hell. You say, well, why do you believe in hell? I've already said again that Jesus taught it. There are over 162 texts in the New Testament of the Bible which deal with the doom of the lost sinner. Over 70 of those were uttered by Jesus Christ himself. And so if you don't believe in hell, you're really taking issue with what Jesus Christ himself taught. I believe in hell because Jesus taught it. But I also believe in hell because the death of Jesus demonstrates it. Now be reasonable with me for a moment. Just think about it. If there is no hell from which people need to be saved, why 
did Jesus even die in the first place? Did Jesus die on the cross to save you from a non-existent destiny? Listen, for every bruise laid on Jesus' face, for every foul mouth of spit that was spat on Jesus' face, for every hair that was plucked from Jesus' beard, for every antagonizing point of the thorns that was laid upon his head, for every lash that was laid upon his back, for every drop of blood that fell to the ground by the heartache and the agony of dark Calvary, I declare unto you, my friend, that there was a real, literal place called hell, and that God Almighty allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to die so that if we would place our faith in Him, then we could be saved. That's right. If there was no hell, then Calvary was the blunder of all ages. So I believe in hell because Jesus taught it. I believe in hell because of Calvary. But I also believe in hell because the justice of God demands it. Do you think that a man can rape a child, abuse a teen, cheat and steal and connive? Do you think a man can blaspheme and hate God and live in a world that's wicked and then at the end of life just die and it's all over? Do you really believe that? I don't believe that. No, no, no. The wheels of time may grind slowly, but they grind exceeding fine. God says in the Bible, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Friend, the inadequates, the, the inequities in life will not continue after death. There are no inequities in death, but there are and there are no inequities in destiny. So the very justice of God demands that there be a hell, and the same Bible tells us about hell also tells us about heaven. Now, what will hell be like? I'm not interested again in maybe what someone has imagined or written in some fiction book. I've seen and read many of those things over the year. Rather, I am concerned at what the Bible says hell is like. Number one, in this text, the Bible tells us that hell is a place of misery. It is a place of sensual misery. You will carry your feelings, your your sensual feelings to hell. In Luke chapter 16, verses 23, 24, and 25, there is one word that is found in all three of those verses. The word torment, torment, torment. Hell is a place of torment. What will hell be like? Hell is a place of torment. I did not say torture. Torture. Don't get the idea that that God is there torturing people in hell. No, no, no. Rather, people are tormented in hell, and it is a self-inflicted torment. The door of hell is locked from the inside. The rich man said in verse 24, I am tormented in this flame. This brings an interesting question. Is the fire there real? Yes, it is real, my friend. I I, I don't know, again, all of what is being spoken about, if it's a figurative fire or a literal fire, but, but yes, he is talking about a real fire. Here's what I'm trying to say. He is speaking of something that torments. Please don't take it out 
on me. I'm, I'm, I'm just the messenger. I'm, I'm quoting Jesus. I'm, I'm quoting the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, if you go to hell, you will be an intruder. Hell was not prepared for you. It was not prepared for me. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, according to the text in Matthew. But if you choose to follow Satan, you will follow him into hell. Hell is a place of torment. And when I face God, and yes, someday I will stand before him, you will stand before him, then I will have to give an account of the way that I preached. I, I, I much rather have God say to me, Mark, when you preached on hell, you took my word too literally than for Jesus to look in my face and say, when you preached on hell, Mark, you just explained it away and you did not take my word seriously. Oh, I would way, way further take it seriously, rather take it seriously than not to take it seriously. I'm going to preach it the way that God wrote it. God wrote it. Here is a man that said, I am tormented in this flame. Don't try to water that down. Tell it like it is. It is a place of sensual misery, but it is also a place of emotional misery. Verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime, you see, you will carry your memory to hell. Psychologists tell us that we never forget anything. You say, well, I can't remember things like I used to. I can't either, my friend. But friends, they're still there. You just tap the right spot. Psychologists tell us, and it, it can all come back. So if you go to hell, you will remember every lie you ever told, every dirty joke, every time you cursed, every act of crime, on and on and on I can go. You will remember those who told you about Jesus Christ, those who pleaded with you, to come and put your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, verse 25, Son, remember, remember, you will be remembering. So there is a sensual suffering, there is an emotional suffering, but there is also a spiritual suffering. The man in the text says, Send Lazarus that he might warn my brothers. Don't let them come to this place. Some people in hell have what people on this earth need something of. They, uh, we need a good concern over the lost, over people that do not know Jesus. We don't want to go there, but we don't want other people to go there. We need to warn the lost, and we need to tell them about Jesus while there is still time. You see, there is an eternal misery here in the text. As it says, there is this great gulf, verse 26, fixed between this side and that side. Now, don't get the idea that you will stay in heaven for a while and then you will step over into heaven. No, no, that's not what it says. The passage is clearly teaching that there is life after death and there is no second chance after death. Do you know why Jesus Christ died upon the cross? It was to span that gulf, that chasm. No man can cross that gulf, that chasm. But my friend, you can trust Jesus who spans the chasm. If you're listening to my voice right now, you still have time to trust Jesus, the one who spanned that chasm. 
Now I'm almost finished. Stay with me. Watch this. Watch this. God loves you and he wants you to be saved. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin, for my sin. If you choose not to get saved, then I am telling you that you will take more difficulty, it will take more difficulty to go to hell than it possibly would ever take to go to heaven. You're going to have to climb into hell if you pleased, because God has placed some blockades between you and hell. You're going to have to to climb over those mountains and go around those blockades to get into hell. You say, well, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? You're going to have to climb over this book, over the Bible, over the Word of God in order to get to hell. You're going to have to climb over the prayers of God's people who have prayed for you over and over and over if you're going to go to hell. You're going to have to climb over every gospel witness, every gospel sermon, every gospel message that you've ever heard in order to go to hell. You're going to have to climb over the convicting power of God's Holy Spirit who wants you to come and trust Jesus. I know God is speaking to you right now. Don't resist Him. I will tell you something else you are going to have to climb over. You will have to climb over the love of God that was shown on the cross upon which Jesus Christ died for you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. My friend, God loves you. God does not want you to go to hell. And I promise you on the authority of the Word of God, He will save you and He will keep you saved if you trust in Him today. Trust in Jesus. See the fact that you are a sinner and you need the Savior. He, Jesus, is your Savior. He died on the cross of Calvary. He died you to keep you from going to a Christless place called hell but rather to spend all eternity with Him in a place called heaven. Would you trust Him today? Would you give your life to Him? Let's just bow our heads in prayer right now if we could. And I'm closing my eyes just to, just to cancel out all the surroundings, the, the busyness, the, the confusion, the commotion that maybe is around me right now. And as I pray, if you want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you just pray this very, very simple prayer right now? Our Father, thank you for creating me. Thank you for giving me life. Just say these words in your heart. I realize I am a sinner. I realize I cannot save myself. Thank you for the cross on which you died so that I would not have to go to a place called hell. Dear Father, I trust your Son, Jesus, right now as that sinless substitute who died in my place. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead for me. I put my faith and my wholehearted trust in you, Jesus. 
come into my life and save me from my sin. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.